Welcome back to Wildlife Cake and Cocktails, everybody. Episode 22 here. Now, we've got a very special show for you guys today. In fact, uh, this is the first in our series of TSR Hub Book of Hope podcasts. Now, here at uh, Wildlife Cake and Cocktails, we know that there can be a certain amount of doom and gloom in threatened species conservation, particularly here in Australia with 1,800 species listed as threatened, huge deforestation rates, um, invasive species, and many other threats. Luckily, a new national review of successful conservation projects coordinated by the Threatened Species Recovery Hub of the National Environmental Science Program is drawing attention to the fact that with adequate leadership, support and commitment, all types of Australian threatened species can be successfully recovered. The results and stories behind this national review have just been published in Recovering Australian Threatened Species, a book of hope available from CSIRO Publishing. Now, in fields so often dominated by bad news, lost species, and incredible challenges, this book highlights some of the recent hard-fought victories in Australian wildlife conservation. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking to the lead editor of the book, uh, that's uh, Professor, Professor Stephen Garnett from the uh, Charles Darwin University. So we're very excited to bring you this, the first in a series of shows looking at these wildlife success stories, and keep an eye out for future specials, uh, uh, future special episodes featuring case studies of these successes in conserving threatened fish, birds, mammals, reptiles, uh, plants, and much more. And of course, you can go check out the book at CSIRO Publishing. Um, now, of course, in honor of all the fantastic work being done to uh, recover these threatened species and for the threatened species themselves, you know, struggling on, I'm, uh, I'm drinking something called a will to live. To celebrate their will to live, uh, it's it, it's got uh, contro, amaretto, cognac, and ice cream. It's 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 kind of like a really alcoholic uh, milkshake. <laughs> and I've also got some uh, uh, fresh cream mud cake, which you have to have for uh, for any kind of celebration, of course. Now, um, our main guest onto the show um, will be Professor Stephen Garnett. Um, after a Bachelor of Science with honours in zoology from Australian National Uni in 1977, he moved up to James Cook Uni uh, for a PhD in zoology and tropical veterinary science in 1984 on nutrition and farm husbandry in green turtles and estuarine crocodiles. Since then, he's spent over 30 years involved in a broad range of conservation research and management roles with a variety of cool species, including golden-shouldered parrots, kangaroo island, glossy black cockatoos, and much, much more. He's currently Professor of Conservation and Livelihoods at Charles Darwin Uni and Deputy Director of the Threatened Species Recovery Hub. So here to tell us more about Recovering Australian Threatened Species, a book of hope recently published uh, just this March by CSIRO. Professor Stephen Garnett is the lead editor along with Peter Latch, David Linnemeyer, and John Wynarski. Uh, Professor Garnett, thank you so much for joining us, mate. My pleasure. Excellent. It would be great to have you on, um, especially after we had a few missed opportunities there with the uh, shutdown from Cyclone Marcus. <laughs> That's right. Yes, so we've got over that now. We've blown past. Yeah, and the, the university's back open again, so we can, uh, we can get on with the show. We had uh, Cyclone Linda here, uh, being, being cyclone season, of course, here in uh, tropical Australia. But uh, luckily, it just kind of cruised along the coastline and made a bit of waves for all the surfers along the coast here. <laughs> All right, look, so on to the show. Um, 
So, look, uh, the Book of Hope. Uh, very, very excited to hear about this. Now, from what I understand, there's some 30 case studies involving um, these uh, successfully recovered threatened species. Um, now, that's a huge amount of experts and researchers and land managers. Um, you know, all that had to be uh, brought together. Um, how did you manage to get all these people um, involved, and um, how exactly did this uh, this book come about? Uh, well, its origin probably goes back oh, nearly 10 years now when we started thinking about the messaging around threatened species and how gloomy it all was and how hopeless. And you, you look at the changes that have occurred over the last 50 years in the environment and environmental management, there's been a lot of good things as, lot as, as well as the bad things. And if you don't tell stories about the good things, people will give up. Give up. Right. To tackle threatened species, you've got to be optimistic, really, or you don't even start. And there's plenty of room for, for optimism. So we, David Lindenmeyer and I, wrote something about that, and uh, we're still getting comments on that many years later. And taking that message forward, we decided as part of this project that we should bring together successful managers of threatened species from around the country in a workshop, which we did a couple of years ago. Lots of enthusiasm about it. Lots of people wanting to come to it to tell these good stories about the things they've been doing. Because many of these people have given their lives to the to the threatened species they're working on, and they rarely get the, the credit for the, the work they've done. So we, we brought them together in a workshop. We got people to tell the stories and tried to then tease out the common factors behind their successes. Okay. So how, how long ago uh, exactly was the, uh, the workshop that got everybody together? So that was March 2016. Oh, so quite recently. Oh, yes, yes. It takes a while to, to get everybody to write their chapters and, and take it through to production. But these are, these are pretty up-to-date, these stories. Uh, uh, You've always got to be careful that something doesn't take a downturn between when the work is, is the, the workshop and, and when it's published. But uh, <laughs> the best of my knowledge, everything with these has continued to go well. Oh, fantastic. Well, yeah, obviously that's what we hope for with, uh, with all of these projects, I guess. Um, so, look, uh, can you tell us, uh, you know, what exactly is the book about and um, why do you think it's necessary now? I think it's necessary now because it's necessary any time to tell these stories. There, there is a wish, a hope from the Australian public we won't lose things, more species to extinction. We get that again and again with our surveys. What we need to do is demonstrate that we can bring things back, even things we think we've lost a century ago. They're rediscovered and we can bring them back to some level of security where extinction is less likely. And that's a story that needs to be told to those funding threatened species work to say that the money's worth spending, that it's not just throwing it at things that are going to go anyway. Yeah. Well, look, even as a youngster, I remember uh, how inspired I was by the rediscovery of the pygmy blue tongue. Um, you know, the little... Little Tilicoa adelaidensis, you know, that was uh, thought completely extinct and gone for quite some time. And then 
I believe it was rediscovered uh, after a herpetologist uh, accidentally hit a hit a snake on the road and and looked inside its stomach contents. Is that correct? That that's right. Yes, there's a number of stories in this book that that uh, I like that of things that have disappeared and then come being brought back to life again in some ways. So so the book is it's got a brief introduction from us about what we're trying to do, and then it has about 30 chapters from people from all over the country who have been involved in threatened species recovery, often for, I mean, some of them for over 50 years, bringing these species back and, and telling those stories. And then we have a chapter at the end that's talking about what the, the common threads are. Yeah, right. So uh, as, as I understand it as well, it's not just... Uh, you know, uh, single species case studies. There's like a broad variety of, well, first of all, you're looking at broad taxonomic groups. You know, there's things from invertebrates through to plants, through to mammals, through to obviously reptiles, as we mentioned. Um, and, uh, you know, on, on top of that, it's not just species that were thought extinct, but things that were known to be in decline, where the decline was reversed and, 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 and things of this nature. So it's quite a broad... Uh, not only taxonomic range, but, you know, I guess what you define as a successful recovery, there's a, a broad number of different, I guess, su uh, successful cases in a broad number of categories as well. That's right, yes. I mean, we start with the, the humpback whale, which has come back because of successful policy change in the 1950s and 60s. Yeah, right. And then we, but we do have, we have invertebrates, as you say, fish, plants. Um, we've got, we, the start of the, the um, book is all about species that have been recovered entirely in the wild. Then later on we go through to somewhere that there's been captive breeding or with plants. They've been um, grown in, in nurseries and put out in new sites. In the wild, there's, there's always a wild connection. Uh, we've got two chapters where they've been putting up large fences to keep out predators, and we've got an entire chapter about the role of, of captive breeding in threatened species recovery. Yeah, wonderful! Wow. So we don't try and so we don't try and limit what might be considered as as recovery. We we take a, a full range of definitions of that that term. And uh, and explore those, and and people can make up their own minds. Right, and uh, and I understand that throughout the review, you kind of, uh, as you mentioned as well, in the uh, the end of the the book, there you're kind of drawing all of these cases together and kind of finding some correlating factors. Is that kind of how these uh, the I guess success factors were generally uh, brought about? That's right, because we want this these successes replicated in in lots of other species. And uh, someone was asking me the other day about, oh, what sorts are you going to put in volume two, which was quite fun. With, uh, <laughs> we, had to, we had to exclude a number because we get, we're getting too many birds in there, which happens to be my speciality. Um, but there are, there, are, there are plenty of others we could have put in there, but we wanted to get the, the breadth of experience across the country. Yeah, right. I, 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 you know, obviously can't wait to get my hands on it. But from, uh, you know, the small amount of notes that I read, the, you know, the amazing successes that have happened for a number of species of you know are really quite stunning like uh the turnaround on macquarie island just by controlling invasive species for uh, like basically the entire ecosystem starting to kind of 
recover. Um, that's, that's right. But you say, uh, just get rid of a, a few invasive species. But my goodness, that was an extraordinary logistic achievement. Absolutely. And, and even political achievement to get the funds for it. And then the first year, the weather came in, so they couldn't complete it. They had to go back the next year. They had to five years. They had people walking all over the island, making sure they really had got rid of the, the rabbits and the, the rats and the mice and the cats. Uh, so it was an, just an amazing story of, of dedication by people to bring that success about. Mm. And really requires, like, um, from what I understand, for a lot of these projects, community support is one of the, the really major factors for, for the success of these uh, recovery projects. Uh, indeed. Uh, you've got to have the community behind you, uh, and the community can contribute so much to to these sorts of projects. I, I was, you mentioned I worked on glossy black cockatoos on Kangaroo Island, and we could never have done that without the support of the community in not just monitoring the birds, but we trained people to climb trees and see how, they, uh, how the nestlings were going to protect trees from possums, to, to chase out the big nest hollows and all sorts of things. Wow, what, like community members on Kangaroo Island? That's right, yes. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, no, I, was, I went there as a researcher and was terrified about climbing trees. So I thought, oh, well, <laughs> if I do it with a group, I'll <laughs> all do it together. And, and, uh, and they're terrific. And, and uh, it meant we had the farmers involved and lots of people. Um, hey, if they've grown up on the island climbing the trees there themselves, then uh, they'll, they'll be the best ones to teach you how to do it. Uh, yeah, and and uh, people um, were very proud of their their birds there and, and having them nesting on their property and and that sort of thing. Yeah, I can imagine. Look, for anybody who hasn't um, seen the uh, glossy black cockatoo, um, just imagine a uh, if you've seen a sulphur crested cockatoo, it'll make that black and uh, give them some beautiful yellow kind of sulphury patching uh, around their lower face and neck. Is that correct? Yeah, that's the that's the females, and then they have these wonderful red panels in the tail, and uh, and the most endearing personalities. They they're very um, tend to be tame in the wild. You can get very close to them, and they just go on eating their casuarinas and looking at you. Um, um, yeah, right. So, well, look, it's not surprising that people are uh, you know there's so much community support for these animals as well, particularly in such an amazing area like Kangaroo Island with some you know pretty unique uh, species on in the area. Uh, but it's not just those those charismatic species. That's one of the things that came through in the book. It's it's just about anything. If it's near extinction, people will become attached to it. And you know, two of the plants we've got in here have spiny in their name. There's a spiny date <laughs> and a, and a, and a sm sm spiny rice flower. And both of them have really strong community support. Hey, there's a lot of us who 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 are fans of uh, spiny prickly. <laughs> organisms and, and, and people <laughs> yes but if it's rare then people feel that, it, that they're the underdog they're the battlers they've got to look after them and survey after survey is saying that people do not want further extinctions absolutely and that's obviously coming through with the amount of uh, you know push uh, for you know threatened species uh, conservation in Australia and and abroad as well but um, you know it's a uh, the, the amount of community support, that, the, the amount the, of importance that, that community 
seems to have for these uh, successes is huge. Um, I understand as well for, from indigenous communities for a lot of these projects, which, um, which is awesome to see uh, indigenous and scientific knowledge streams kind of uh, combining really uh, uh, intricately to, to come up with solutions for threatened species. It's, uh, yeah, quite fascinating. Yes, that's, that's, um, there's one chapter we have in here about the Waru and the APY lands in northern South Australia where the indigenous community has been absolutely critical. It is that they are their animals and they have elected to put a lot of effort into conserving them. And that is happening around the country where there are lots of ranger groups now who are taking responsibility for the threatened species on the land that, on which they're working. Right. And there's a lovely example, uh, it's not included in this book, hopefully it will be in the next one up on Cape York where the Ultala people, are, uh, for them the golden-shouldered parrot is Alwal, they call it, is a, a significant bird culturally and at this very moment they are developing the first indigenous-led recovery plan for the species. Oh, fantastic. So, yes, so, so that's, there's a lot of exciting developments in that space, and you can see that threatened species management can become one of a, a set of sort of economic opportunities, people being paid to look after them should they choose to do so. Well, right, and, and it also provides even more reason for that community support. Like, uh, if you're providing, you know, potential for employment and uh, not just that, but that connection to country that comes with, uh, I guess, being around nature and maybe even helping threatened species conservation projects or environmental conservation projects, whatever they may be, may fulfill some of that, um, yeah, connection to country. Well, it gives people uh, an opportunity in many cases to get back onto country or to live on country uh, and fulfill cultural responsibilities. Uh, because they're resourced to do the work on threatened species, and then you do get this, and then you do get this overlap where people, where the threatened species itself is is culturally highly important. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, the uh, first indigenous recovery plans uh, are being uh, developed. That's that's uh, you know fantastic, incredible news. Um, but uh, can you tell us a bit about the importance of recovery plans now that? Um now that this, <laughs> there seems to be a bit of a struggle to get them up off the ground some of the time? Yes, well, recovery plans, um, are, we found, was a common feature. There's been some concern of lots of plans being written and nothing being done. Uh, but where there has been success, recovery plans have really featured as one of the factors that has driven that success. People have think through the major threats, what the impacts are, what knowledge is needed, what actions are then required. They do it in a systematic way and they do it in a way that's adaptive, so they have a plan, see what works, and then adjust that plan. So it's a, unless you do that planning, then recovery is much less likely. You would rush off and do things that won't work or even cause harm unless the, it's done systematically. Right, and obviously, you know, systematically, you're getting a better, hopefully, a, a more efficient outcome, but also, you know, you can potentially monitor them better and 
uh, you know, I, I guess that's where the importance of the adaptability of the plan comes into it. If, uh, if you can monitor it well and it's nice and adaptable, then you can hopefully foresee any um, changes or threats. That's, that's right. And planning that monitoring, because you can rush off and monitor the wrong thing that doesn't tell you anything. And so planning the monitoring uh, with help from statisticians so that you can actually detect trends when they occur is an essential element of a recovery plan and a part of the recovery process. Yeah, good experimental design so you actually get good statistical outcomes is always a, always a challenge. That's, that's right, and we're getting better at it, so knowing not to collect too much information, collect the right amount. You need a, enough to know what's happening, but don't put all your effort into monitoring. You should make sure you've got enough to, to manage uh, threats as well. Now, um, you mentioned that uh, you know, recovery plans obviously are one of those uh, key sort of steps in, uh, in the recovery process. Um, from, uh, from what I understand, there's uh, seven steps that throughout the um, review were um, uh, identified uh, as being important for recovery. Um, do you mind taking us through those uh, seven just briefly? Certainly. Uh, the, the the recovery plan is, is the first one, but you've got to, in combination with that, is to have a, a team of people who will put that plan into effect. And uh, th that was, we found that was a common feature across many of, almost all of these success stories. So the recovery team should involve a wide range of stakeholders with, a, with an interest in in that process. So there's no, if the, we've got one, in, there's a cockatoo in southwest Australia, which was eating apples and things like that. Now they, the apple growers were not part of the initial recovery team. And so it wasn't making much headway. <laughs> because they were able to exert, they had their concerns quite legitimate and they needed to be brought in to the recovery team to, to have an effect. And so it is, it is really important to, to get everybody, those who are um, affected, it could be affected negatively by the recovery process, as well as those who desperately want the species to recover. Right, it's, so it's important to uh, you know, recognize the impacts of the recovery process, not just on the, the threatened species itself. That's right. And now increasingly, as we talked about, indigenous traditional owners are becoming part of, of recovery teams. It's a good thing to have certainly the key government departments, but also groups outside government departments with an interest in, this, in a species. So NGOs have played very important roles on on many or just individuals with a with an interest right okay so that's uh the uh getting the right team together what's uh what's next on the steps to recovery so within a recovery team you often have someone who who will dedicate their life to to bringing something back uh this the champion of the species and, and it's, uh, it doesn't take long working with wildlife to start meeting some uh, people who are very, very, well, lifelong dedicated to a certain uh, animal or cause or, or something like that. 
That's right. So the best teams, you have a, a champion, you have your team there, uh, and the champion and the team work together to bring the species back. And they go to extraordinary lengths. To, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not something that's a job in most cases. It's a vacation. It's, they, yeah, it's a bit of a calling. Yes. And uh, we're odd species in that sense, is that there are people who will dedicate their lives to retaining other species. There's, there's no other species does that. <laughs> uh, and in a, those of us who don't want extinctions have an enormous debt to these these people so they're giving so much of their life so and and the, many of the chapters are, are written by people who have had that role in the recovery process right so there'll be a lot of uh, uh, recovery champions who are also champion authors in this, uh, <laughs> exactly. in this book as exactly. well yeah. wonderful wonderful all right and uh, so after we have our champions what's uh, what's our next step so you need to have the legislation and policy in place uh, it's very difficult if you have have things working against protection of a, of a species in terms of um, allowing developments to go ahead, uh, not providing the the sort of the policy people in in government who will say, look, you know, there's the species over there that shouldn't be cleared, there shouldn't be development there, uh, and we've got we have had the EPBC Act since 2000, and it is certainly fulfill some roles where it is important to get species onto their onto the EPBC lists uh, to ensure they're they're protected. We've got a number of projects where we're trying to bring things onto the list that are missed out and so don't get considered when developments go ahead. Just for our audience, the it says the Environment and Biodiversity Protection uh, EPBC Act. Act. Yeah. Right. Protection and Conservation Act. That's right. That's what it is. So <laughs> Environment and Biodiversity Protection and Conservation Act, EPBC Act. So that's, that's been an important instrument for, for protecting species. The, but not only you need the legislation, you need policy to make sure that um, Act is complied with. Uh, and where possible, you need policy to go, to go beyond the Act. To, for there to be active support for threatened species conservation, not just protection from from threats coming from outside or coming from development. Obvi yeah, obviously, when when you're monitoring things and if things take a turn and things need to change, uh, and things need to be a little bit adaptive as as much as possible, and uh, that's a bit difficult in policy some of the time. That's right, and that's a federal act, and so it has some functions under federal powers, but there's lots of things the states and territories have jurisdiction over, and it's one of the things has been support from within the states and territories, or even local government, to support threatened species as well. Right. Okay. So, um, obviously, continued, uh, continued work on policy and law as, uh, as you know, more information and research and new threatened species projects come to light. Uh, where do we go from there? So resources, money, um, 
Uh, well, not just mine. Yeah. Certainly, on it's a lot of threatened species work tends to be funded with short-term projects, so a couple of years, um, maybe a few years longer. It's taken a long time for many of these threatened species to become threatened, and it's going to take a long time to bring them back. And it needs sustained funding because of the funding falters, then you take you go back again and it has to start again. So there, there needs to be, and a common feature of these success stories is sustained funding. These recovery teams and the recovery champions are often very effective at drawing on multiple sources to, to, to gain the support. Uh, you'll have a government program last for a few years, then you have to jump to another one, write the proposals right. the, the right ways. It's, it's not often that you get a government that will say, here's 20 years support to, to bring this species back. Uh, so that, that would be ideal. But the, these success stories, a common feature is being able to keep the flow of money coming. And it's, and it's not just money, it's other resources as well, particularly skills, having adequate skills in the and the people uh, who are involved and, and making sure those are maintained. Uh, so it's, yes, you've got to have adequate su support and, and as much as possible continuous support for extended periods and until they're at a stage where they can survive with little or no outside input. Yeah, I guess committing uh, to uh, providing those resources until they are recovered, or at least somewhat stabilized, um, bit of a challenge. That's right. And then, right. And then the next step is, um, is the role of research. Every one of these, there's been enough knowledge uh, at the start or generated through the project to s make the interventions effective. Because without that, as I mentioned you can spend a lot of time doing things that don't actually do very much for the species concerned. So all of these are based on good research on the, the natural history of the species, uh, the constraints on, on its survival, the threats that are uh, affecting them and how to manage those threats. Right, so really getting the research done so you can address those like uh, the life history weak spots, I guess, wherever wherever there is uh, more risk for that species or that group or whatever it is, really finding out what those risks and threats are, I guess. Is that correct? That, that's, that's correct. And uh, being willing to adjust the management in the light of new knowledge so that you haven't got a... You can't have a rigid plan and um, you need to have adaptive management with research going hand in hand with the implementation of, of management and, and monitoring goes along there too. And of course, it's not a, they're not often not one-off research. What you learn about one species, you can apply to other species so that we get um, in, incremental improvement across the board because of work done on one species. Um, improving the management of other ones. Right. So obviously, yeah, what, what might work for one might work for others, but even the research that shows that what one works for one doesn't work for another is, is also very important. <laughs> that's, that's certainly correct. To, to avoid um, those, uh, to, to avoid those uh, bad decisions, of course. 
Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned Macquarie Island earlier. Macquarie Island built on work that had been done in New Zealand where they, they're they getting larger and larger islands from which they're able to eradicate rats and mice and rabbits and, and things like that. Now, Macquarie was the biggest island attempted in the world at that time, but it would not have been possible had the techniques not been developed in New Zealand and and now they're thinking of removing rats from Lord Howe Island. They're doing lots of rat eradications and cat eradications in Western Australia that will then make islands safe from, from, from those sorts of predators. And some of these stories talk about that learning process. Arid Recovery has a chapter on what they learnt when you put up huge fences in, in arid Australia and put vulnerable small mammals in there to keep them away from cats and foxes and uh, some of them did so well they got too many of them yeah right. <laughs> they had, to, had to take some out and you've got to so it's, it's this adaptive management that's a key part of any successful recovery yeah right that's uh that's fascinating that um that uh some of those management strategies for macquarie came from new zealand i you know i know that they had their issues with uh with bird loss on islands, I think was it on the the lighthouse keeper who found the last of the little uh, shrew uh, type uh, wrens? Was that on? Yes, it was a little wren, but it was in the mouth of its cat and already dead. The Stephen Islands wren, and uh, yeah, but they've lost they've lost so much from New Zealand. But they have, and they've been willing to try all sorts of things to bring things back and and are now exporting that knowledge around the world yeah um, good on them. It, uh, it, yes yeah and uh, it's actually um good for the new zealand economy that they have been so innovative in their management of certain species right fantastic so we've got our recovery plan we've got our team we've got our champions we've got our policy and law we've got our resources we've got our evidence uh and adapting to new evidence as it uh, emerges. Um, final step in uh, in these uh, uh, in the recovery process is telling the story, is, which is what this book is about. But also in lots of other media, people have to know that there has been success. You tell the story of the species, and it's it's struggled to start with. Uh, quite a few of them, as we talked about, were, were rediscoveries. They thought they'd been lost and then someone had the right knowledge and was in the right place at the right time and came across this last remaining bird or plant or, or uh, other small animal. Small lizard. <laughs> yeah, small lizard, your pygmy blue dung, the, the stick insects on, on Ball's Pyramid. And it makes a wonderful story. And people support that and, and recognize the importance, the uniqueness of that, the story of that particular threatened species and identify with that. And you can tell it's every species has a story of some sort that can be told and, and uh, that, that's critical to getting the, all the other factors in place is telling that story. And, and then when the good news happens, telling that story, but also continuing to tell the, the story of the struggle. Just making sure the community is aware of the effort being put in to recover species. 
Right, absolutely. No, it, it, it is very important. Like, uh, as we mentioned, it can be um, uh, a very tough field to be in, but the, uh, the successes that uh, I guess we're seeing more and more often are, uh, are quite amazing um, and do give a lot of a lot of hope for people with uh, with an eye on on environment and ecosystem and uh, threatened species uh, at the moment. Indeed, and we've got to guess there's, there's still a lot of problems out there, but they're not insuperable. And just about anything can be brought back and and retained if we put the the effort in and uh, the public is behind us and the the uh, there's the investments. Um, the the money put in to to keep the work going. Yeah, yeah, right. What well, what I find really interesting about all this is that um you know you've got this book about uh, threatened species recovery and um uh you know dealing with uh, fauna and environment and ecosystems and and it, in the end it's really about people. You've got um this emphasis on communities and um you know whether the, that's the indigenous or the scientific community or the local community or these other community groups or or even other you know public or governmental or, or business organizations um you know you've certain people with uh, very important skills for you know finding these resources or changing policy and law your recovery champions getting the teams together um, it's, uh, it's incredible, you know, it, it, in the end, you know, it really is about the people and the community that are involved, which is not surprising. That's right. I, I, in some ways, the, the biology is the easy part. It's the, <laughs> it's the social side that's the trickier part of, of threatened species recovery. And, and of course, it's, it's a social value to, to say that threatened species are important. And that's, it, from the very start, it's about the people. And... Uh, we think as a society that threatened species ought not to be lost and we express that through our legislation I mean 50 years ago 100 years ago no one did think that was important now they do and now we think it's a, an important element of having a, a civilized society is to make sure we we retain the biodiversity heritage that we inherited and pass this on to our children. Could not agree with you more. <laughs> so, um, uh, where to from here? Um, how, how do you, uh, uh, you, well, obviously the book's coming out, and you're going to be spreading these fantastic success stories. Um, how do you guys uh, at uh, TSR Hub uh, plan to uh, implement this stuff more broadly? And um, I guess, more importantly, where do you, where do you uh, start to look for future recovery champions and people for the... Uh, people for the uh, the projects and uh, all the work in threatened species recovery? Well, there's, there are a lot of people out there. As I mentioned, there's many other stories we could tell. Uh, we've just, I've just been involved with a couple of workshops with uh, on one on birds, one on fish, uh, one on the Christmas Island frigate birds. Uh, to each of them, we were able to invite numbers of people with expertise in those areas who are the incipient or existing species champions. Uh, our job is to work out how we can get them support, link them together, get a, a network of people uh, who can support each other, identify the skills, identify how we deal with the threats. Our research is built partly about the uh, how we alleviate the threats, but there's a, a big social science element in there as well. 
uh, some on economics and and uh, how important threatened species can be to some some communities in in terms of the the economic value. There are many different avenues for trying to to rescue these species, uh, keep support going for them, uh, turn them around so that in the end we have fewer threatened species. We just have lots of valuable ones, but they're not likely to go extinct. Yeah, fantastic. Well, a lot of work in the future and I look forward to seeing uh, everything that you guys are doing. Uh, Professor Stephen Garnett, thank you so much for joining us. This has been super, super interesting. Um, I've had a great time and... um, yeah, I can't wait to uh, talk to uh, talk to you guys more about this uh, this fantastic book. Oh, we'll talk to you again around volume two, whenever that. Wonderful, might be. wonderful, <laughs> excellent. And uh, and people can obviously pick up the book from uh, CSIRO Publishing. Um, I think you can go there online at publish.csiro.au, um, and you can also check out uh, Professor Stephen Garnett at cdu.edu.au for the Charles Darwin University. Um, Many thanks as well to Jana Dielenberg, Science and Communication Manager for TSR Hub, for setting all this up. You can check out TSR Hub, uh, that's TSR underscore Hub on Twitter, or at NESP Threatened Species on Facebook. Uh, right, I think that's about it. Thanks again, Stephen. Can't wait to talk to you again for, uh, for Volume 2 whenever it comes out. Thanks a lot. No worries, mate. You have a good day. Cheers. All right, guys. That's been Professor Stephen Garnett. Uh, I'm your host, Gianni Tocola. Plenty more wildlife cake and cocktails coming up soon. Cheers. Talk soon. Bye.